when we uh, first started New Denver Church 10 years ago, we had this idea, let's have three co-pastors who all regularly preach. Because we believed that um, we would all have different communication styles, we would have different perspectives, and it would be healthy for our church to have and hear from different voices on a regular basis. So there were three of us originally. It was Stephen, uh, myself, and Jason, who was the other founding pastor. And we each preached uh, about a third of the time. And I remember a good friend, uh, Lisa Marie, who used to come to our church. Lisa Marie, if you're listening, big shout out to you. She's in California now. Um, I remember she came to me one time and she said, I love it that you and Jason and Stephen all preach regularly. Um, because uh, Jason is always so engaging, Stephen is really encouraging, and you're really convicting. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Lisa Marie. Um, Can I be engaging or encouraging guy? (laughs) Because nobody likes convicting guy. Like, nobody likes to have that guy around. Um, But that's how I felt the last uh, few weeks, especially last week, a bit like a prophet. Because I've been pointing out this problem that I think we all sense, that that I think we're somewhat aware of, but we don't know how to put our finger on it, and we certainly don't know what to do about it. And the problem is that we're obsessed with immediatism, which means I don't want anything to stand in the way of what I want and the attainment of what I want. So whether it's a new adventure, a new job, an answer to a question, a solution to a problem, or simply a new pair of shoes, I want to acquire those things immediately, right? I want to get them quickly, I want to get them easily, and I want to get them on my own. So I want them immediately. And when we hear the word immediately, the way we usually use it is with no time passing in between what I want and the attainment of what I want. But the word immediately or immediate uh, literally means unmediated, unmediated. I don't want anything to stand in between me and what I want. No time, no hard work, nobody else, no outside help. I want to get things on my own. And the reason I've been pushing against this so strongly for the last uh, several weeks is because we often approach God and we approach faith and we approach change in life in this same way. It's become the primary way, in fact, that we often relate to God and to our spiritual journeys. We want to know God. We want to attain faith. We want to experience transformation in our lives immediately. We want it to happen quickly. We want it to happen now. We want it to happen without much work, and we want to be able to do it on our own terms. And I've been pushing against this pretty strongly for for several weeks, first and foremost because I see it in myself, because I'm this way, because I'm impatient, because I want things immediately, because I don't like to ask for help because I expect God to often act in my life or do things in my life or bless me in ways or give me things on my own terms when I want in the way I want. And I've begun to see that that leads to a lot of frustration and that leads to a lot of disillusionment in my life. And so this is a huge challenge for me personally and if you haven't figured it out yet, I usually just work out my personal challenges through preaching, right? (laughs) And yet I know that it's a challenge for most of you as well. I know that it's hard. I know this is something we all want. 
And yet I also know that you want to genuinely experience God in your life. And you want to, like me, genuinely experience his transformation in your life. And yet what we're all learning is that those things rarely come immediately. They rarely happen quickly. They rarely happen in any unmediated fashion. And so the question that we've asked is this, what if there are some mediators that we need to reclaim? What if there are some mediators that that we've lost? Mediators that aren't barriers between us and God, they don't stand between us and God, but, but they're actually useful and meaningful ways for us to experience God, meaningful ways for us to know and engage his presence in our lives, maybe even necessary ways for us to know the kind of transformation that we so desire and that he can actually bring. And so uh, two weeks ago, we looked at the mediating power of material objects. We looked at a whole bunch of stories in the Bible about how God used actual physical objects, material objects like bread and wine, like water and candles and artwork and all sorts of things. And God uses these material objects to oftentimes help us connect with him on a deeper level. Last week, we talked about the mediating power of the local church. And we saw that in the New Testament, it it couldn't be more clear. You can't really have a personal relationship with God apart from engagement with and a commitment to a local community of faith. That it's that local community of faith that's actually called the body of Christ. That's where we engage and know Jesus maybe more than any other way. Well, today we're going to wrap up this series I want to look at one more potential mediator. We're going to explore the mediating power of non-individualistic practices. So what does that mean? Well, let me unpack that term, and then I'll give you some specifics to flesh this out a little bit. A practice is anything that you do that's initially hard or difficult, but eventually over time it forms you and shapes you into a better person. So a practice can be something like learning how to play the guitar, right? Or learning to speak another language. And those things you have to practice. And when you start practicing, it's hard and it's difficult and you get blisters on your fingers and you're playing the same thing over and over and your mind is tired because you're trying to learn and think in a different way. And it takes a lot of work and a lot of time and a lot of patience and you make all kinds of mistakes and you stumble forward in the process. But if you persevere, if you stick with it, if you keep practicing, then eventually you're formed and shaped into a new person who has calluses and can actually play beautiful music or can think in a different language and communicate with people from a different culture. That's the power of practices. And practices in and of themselves push against this idea that we need to get things quickly and we need to get them without any work because practices don't happen quickly. They take a lot of time and they take a lot of work before there's any real payoff. But I specifically said the power of non-individualistic practices because I think when it comes to our faith, the practices that we think of most often or sometimes we call them spiritual disciplines that we think might help us draw closer to God or might help us in our faith are often more individualistic practices. A few examples, um, like reading the Bible on your own, or there's a practice or a specific way of doing that called Lectio Divina. We've talked about that before. 
Or maybe deciding I'm gonna start each morning, each day with a time of prayer. Or I'm gonna end each day with a prayer or, or, or maybe a reflection on how that day went or maybe even some journaling about that day. Or maybe solitude. That's a great individualistic practice. A personal time of retreat. In fact, we read about Jesus even doing this. The Bible describes how sometimes he went away from the crowds to be by himself, to be with his thoughts, to be with his feelings, ultimately to be with his heavenly father. And that's a really important practice for us because we live in a really busy and a really noisy world. And sometimes the best thing we can do is regularly get away from that to reconnect with God. So there's lots of individualistic practices we could talk about today, but today I want to focus on the mediating power of non-individualistic practices, practices that we might do in community or with other people that will actually push against that idea that I can do this on my own, that it's just about me and God and I can somehow connect with him on my terms. Maybe there are some practices we can do with others that will challenge that notion that help us know that we need one another and that when we engage them in community, they pay off in a really rich and unique way. And so let me get specific. I wanna describe to you three non-individualistic practices this morning, and there's lots. I made a long list of possibilities. There's lots of different ones we could talk about. I just picked three that I thought might be useful and important. So here's the first one. Number one is... Sunday liturgy, Sunday liturgy. Now this is an easy one because we actually already do this, but I wanna explain what this means because you might start to see this and experience this a little bit differently and see why it's so important. Now, by the word liturgy, I just mean the specific habits and the specific rituals that we do when we show up here at 9 a.m. on Sunday morning. There's a, a specific order that we follow. We sing some songs, right? We pray some prayers together. Sometimes we pray them out loud. Sometimes we pray them silently. Sometimes we use words that were written hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Sometimes we say words from scripture, particularly from the Psalms that were written prayers a long time ago. We say the Apostles' Creed regularly. We open the Bible and listen to what it has to say to us regularly. We pray prayers of confession regularly. We take communion regularly. We celebrate baptism as a community of faith from time to time. So we have a a general order that we follow, but all of these components are referred to as the liturgy or these liturgical elements. And every church has a liturgy. Every church follows a liturgy. Some are much more traditional and sort of rigid and rigorous about it, and others are more modern or contemporary. But every time you gather with the community of faith, you're doing habits and rituals and different things together. And whether we realize it or not, these habits or these rituals, these things we're doing together are forming us. They're actually shaping us. They're shaping how we see the world. They're shaping what it is that we believe. They're shaping how we're going to respond when life gets really, really hard. Uh, My wife Janice grew up in uh, the Lutheran tradition. Her parents were Lutheran, and so every Sunday um, they went to a church where the liturgy in the worship service was very uh, traditional 
and uh, somewhat repetitive. In fact, her mom, her mom's name was Colette, um, her mom grew up in the Roman Catholic tradition. And so her entire life, she went to church services where she said a lot of the same prayers and creeds over and over and over in her life. Last year, Colette uh, passed away. Um, Her health had been declining for some time. And in the last few months of her life, uh, she was in a nursing home and um, her body just wasn't cooperating anymore. She couldn't eat on her own. Um, she couldn't even really speak. She would, she would try to, to form words. She would try to talk, but she, she just, she couldn't, she couldn't do it anymore. Um, Janice was there visiting one day and the pastor's wife from their local Lutheran church uh, came to visit and bring communion. And so she gave Colette the bread and the wine and she began to pray She began to pray the Lord's Prayer over her. And without hesitation, Colette just began saying the words of the Lord's Prayer out loud perfectly. And it was, it was, it was, it was from some deep place within her that had been formed in her over all of those Sundays of her life of saying these words together with people and in community. They were forming her in a way that no one would have known or maybe even seen until this moment in her life. (laughs) That's the power and that's the work of liturgy. And do you know what the word liturgy actually means? It's a combination of two Greek words that put together means the work of the people or or the practice of, of the people. It's the work that we do when we're together, and that's the key here. It's whenever we gather, we do this work by saying these things and thinking these things and singing these things. And sometimes they're kind of boring and they're repetitive, right? We're going to sing that song again. We're praying that prayer again. Didn't we do that a few weeks ago, right? We're saying the Apostles' Creed again. We're going to read that same story that Jesus told again. We're going to do Lent again this year, right? We're taking communion again. Yeah. Yeah, we are. Because it's a practice. It's the practice we do. It's the work we do. It's like practicing chords or practicing plays, right? or practicing verb conjugations. It's the practice and the work that we do, and it's not always immediately satisfying. But in the long run, it's forming us, and it's working on us as we do this work. It's working on us in ways that we may not even be aware. It's mediating God's work in our lives. It's mediating his transformation in our lives in a very slow, a very patient, and almost imperceptible, but at times undeniable way. That's the mediating power of liturgy. So maybe it's something that we can all begin to see in a new light as we say prayers and we sing songs and we listen and we gather 
together on Sundays. Let me give you a second non-individualistic practice that's important, and it's hospitality. Hospitality. Um, For some people, hospitality is a personality trait, right? Uh, There's just people who are kind and outgoing and um, encouraging, Stephen, and uh, not me. Um, I'm convicting, not encouraging. Um, There's some people that just love to cook meals and invite people over to their homes. There's some people that just always have a knack for seeing the people who are on the margins and reaching out to them. Some people are just wired and gifted that way, right? But most of us are not. (laughs) For most of us, hospitality is a practice. It's a habit that has to be intentionally pursued. For many of us, it's actually work that we do because it doesn't come naturally. And it's the kind of work that doesn't seem very spiritually heroic, right? The work that's spiritually heroic is next year I'm gonna read through the Bible in a whole year on my own. I'm gonna start getting up at 5 a.m. in the morning and praying every day. I'm gonna go on a retreat in a monastery in New Mexico, right? Those are the things that seem so spiritually heroic. If you really wanna connect with God at a deep level, you go do these things. And not to take anything away from those things. But you know where Jesus spent probably 90, 95% of his time? It wasn't in the mountains by himself. It was with other people. People who weren't even in his immediate family. He spent that time in synagogues. He spent that time in public spaces and places. He spent that time in people's homes. And who is it that Jesus often moved toward? He moved toward people on the margins. He moved toward strangers who were in need of love and hope and inclusion. And what did he often do with them? He shared a whole lot of meals. He went to a lot of parties. And in fact, one day, and this was right before he went to the cross, He was hanging out with his disciples and with some people. And he told them, he said, do you know where people are gonna experience me the most? And he knew that he was about to leave them. They didn't understand that. But he was looking forward and he says, do you know where you're gonna be the closest to me, where you'll experience me the most, where you'll know me the most, where you can serve me and be with me the most? It's when you see somebody who's hungry. It's when you see someone who's lonely. It's when you see that stranger that doesn't fit in and you move towards him and you invite them over and you share a meal with them. Because when you do that, you're actually spending time with me. You see, Jesus taught us that the practice of hospitality towards others is one of the top things, maybe the number one thing that mediates his presence in our lives. That's when he is with us. And we read that story that he gave, and and I think sometimes, you know, when Jesus says, I was that one, I was that person who was lonely, I was that stranger, I was the person who was hungry, I think sometimes we read the story and I think that Jesus somehow shape-shifted and became that person because he was up in heaven and he wanted to test us to see if we were really kind to people, right, because he couldn't figure that out from heaven. No. No. I think Jesus just knew 
when we show hospitality, when we show compassion, when we show grace to other people, that's when we best experience the hospitality and the grace and the compassion that he's shown to us. When we sacrifice some time, some energy, some money, when we make space at our tables for others, when we take risks on relationships with others, that's when we best understand how he sacrificed for us, how he made space at the table for us, how he took a risk in a relationship with us. You see, we meet Jesus when we practice hospitality. Hospitality mediates his presence in our lives. And if it's not obvious yet, hospitality is not an individualistic thing. It requires other people. It requires risk. It requires stepping out of myself and understanding that probably the best way to meet with Jesus is going to be through showing compassion to others. So what if you made hospitality a practice in your life? There's lots of different ways you could do this. Uh, Maybe it's deciding twice a month, moving forward, I'm just gonna invite people over to my house and cook a meal and hang out with them. Maybe if you're really introverted, start it once a month, right? That'll overwhelm you and you can work your way up. Maybe it's showing up at church every Sunday and just deciding, I'm gonna have one intentional conversation with somebody I don't know very well. I'm just going to kind of be looking around for people who look like they're new or they're lost or they don't know anyone very well. And I'm going to just try to have a one intentional conversation with someone like that. Maybe it's just in your own neighborhood. Maybe it's practicing hospitality with your actual neighbors, the people that you live near. There's all kinds of ways you could do this. But what if we saw hospitality as maybe the best way to meet with Jesus for his presence to be mediated in our lives this coming week. So there's Sunday liturgy, there's hospitality, but I wanna give you a third one. Confession to others. Confession to others. Um, Janice and I went to France and Italy this past May to celebrate our 20-year anniversary. And uh, yeah, we ate lots of croissants, lots of pasta, and lots of gelato, and gained a few pounds. Um, we saw lots of art and we visited tons of churches. And in many of the churches, we saw these in the back, confessional booths. This is a picture from the Duomo Cathedral in Milan. It's one of the largest churches in the world. And this is where the first wooden confessional booths were installed in a church. They were installed in the 16th century because before that time, if people wanted to uh, confess to a priest, they just went to the priest's quarters. And in the priest's quarters, they would share the things they're struggling with with the priest. The priest would often offer words of comfort, maybe words of hope, words of forgiveness, maybe even some suggestions for how to overcome those sins or those struggles in someone's life. It was a very intimate setting But because it was an intimate setting, some priests abused this. And so they came up with this new idea of confessional booths to put in churches. And so here's how one historian describes these booths. He says, the confessional was composed of a chair for the confessor, or that's the priest, and a kneeler for the penitent. 
The confessor was enclosed by wooden panels on three sides, but there was a door or doors left open into the body of the church so that he would be on view to the faithful. The panel that divided the confessor or the priest from the penitent had a grill and a curtain. The primary significance of this design was to show the confessor in his guise as judge with the penitent kneeling before him in an attitude of contrition and humility. This is written by a historian named John Cornwell in his book that's titled The Dark Box. Because he goes on to describe how this practice of confession became associated with this dark box. The box became this place of shame and guilt. When individuals went into it, they felt often isolated, alienated, lonely. It led to this anxious searching of one's conscience because there must be something deep down inside that's separating me from God. Now, interestingly, the Protestant reformers kept this same perspective of guilty people kneeling before God, searching their conscience in front of a judge. They just took the priest out of the equation. But this is not how the Bible really describes or portrays what confession looks like. So the Bible, on one hand, upholds the need and the value of confession. When David commits adultery with Bathsheba and then murders her husband, he goes to God in confession. And there's this long psalm, Psalm 51. You can read it sometime. It's this, his, his entire confessional prayer before God. And in the New Testament, the apostle John actually writes this in one of his letters. He says, if we claim to be without sin... We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So recognizing that we're sinful, that we're selfish, that we do things is important and is essential. And when we come to God, it's essential to confess it to him and to experience his grace and his forgiveness. But it's not just about us and God. Other people play a significant role in this as well. In the Bible, here's just a few suggestions. In the book of Leviticus, we read that ancient Israelites would confess their sin and offer sacrifices for their sin publicly. They didn't do it in their homes by themselves. Because in that ancient society, they recognized that their sin, their selfishness, their ingratitude, their pride, whatever it was, it almost always impacted other people. It had consequences in other people's lives. And so confession and forgiveness should involve those people as well. In 2 Samuel 12, David actually confesses his sin to Nathan first, his good friend. He works it out, what he's done, and he confesses it to Nathan before he ever confesses it to God. So Nathan plays a significant role in the process for him. And then in the New Testament, James writes this. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful 
and effective. See, basically James is saying, we need each other. We mediate God's power to each other. We mediate God's presence to one another. And we even mediate God's forgiveness and God's healing to one another. That God will use other people in our lives, friends that we trust, other people in our community, even in the confession process. So that we need to have people in our lives that we can go to and say, hey, um, I have a temper problem. And last night I lost it. I have an honesty problem. I haven't been honest with God. I haven't been honest with myself. And I haven't been honest with anyone else. I need to come clean. Or I have a pornography problem and I've confessed it to God and I'm trying to work through it with him, but I need to confess it to you too because I need other people involved in this in my life. And what if that was something we didn't just do every once in a while when the desperation factor got so high? What if, what if confession became an actual practice in our lives? What if there was one or two people that you trusted, that you came to, and you said, hey, I need to regularly let you know the things that I'm struggling with and the things that I need forgiveness for so that you can walk with me through that, so that you can help me experience God's grace and God's power because I'm having a hard time experiencing it on my own. Or what if you joined a D group and you said, hey, I want this to be a place where we can be open, where I can be open about my weakness and about my sin. And uh, it's probably not going to happen in the first meeting, right? We're not going to go around and all share our, our sins there. Um, we need a little time together first. But what if we all said we hope this becomes a place where we're being more and more vulnerable with each other, where we can confess to one another the ways that we stumble, and then where we can pray for one another, and we can experience God's healing and forgiveness together. And if you don't have anyone in your life like that, maybe getting into a D group is the best next step for you. You can always come talk to me or one of the pastors or one of us on staff. That's what we're here for. We're not going to install confessional booths in the back. Don't worry. Some of you had like PTSD flashbacks in the last five minutes, right? We're not going to do that. But maybe the original intention wasn't so bad. So a few non-individualistic practices for you to consider. And as we wrap up this series, as we move into the fall, I hope you'll begin to see that spirit of immediatism in your own life. And I hope you'll begin to push against it and start asking questions about how that has actually shaped the way you view God and faith and transformation. And if there's anything specific that you need to do about it. I wanna close with a short video. It's from a, a historian and a theologian. Her name is Diana Butler Bass. So take a look. One of the things that uh, social scientists and uh, behavioral therapists are coming to now is the idea that if you put 10,000 hours of practice in on anything, you become excellent at it. And uh, I just think that's an exciting concept for how to think about the Christian life. If we put in 10,000 hours in praying, 
we will become expert prayers. We will become practitioners of prayer, masters of prayer. If we put in 10,000 hours in hospitality, the same thing. We become masters of hospitality. Um, and that goes for any kind of Christian practice, theological reflection, charity, doing justice, loving kindness, serving our neighbor, whatever it would happen to be. And so that sort of makes my heart sing because it's not a miracle to become a good Christian. It's about putting the time in and trying to live a disciplined life. We don't start out perfect, but if we put the time in with the grace of the Holy Spirit and we work at it, we become like Jesus. We can really be imitators of Christ. And so it's a process. It happens over a long period of time. The dominant narrative of North American Christianity is instantaneous transformation. That is, you have a born-again experience and you get saved. Uh, you get baptized in the Holy Spirit, you're spiritually perfect. You have some sort of sanctification experience and you're the best Christian ever. And um, in most North American Christianity, we date those things. I got born again on. And it was like one moment you're something and the next moment you're something else. So that is the dominant narrative. The dominant narrative flies in the face of the historic orthodox narrative of the Christian tradition. And that is that it all takes time. You go back to any of the early Christian fathers and mothers, uh, people like Gregory of Nyssa, um, people who were in the desert traditions, St. Augustine, uh, you go back to all of this early literature of the Christian uh, church and what it all says without hesitation is these things do not happen instantaneously. They happen over a lifetime well lived in Jesus. They happen through our practices and they happen in community. And without those things, you can't be a Christian. Well, that doesn't sound very productive. Well, it certainly doesn't sound very American. Um, and it doesn't sound like it's going to be a quick fix for anything. But what it does sound is it sounds like the meat of the gospel, as Paul urges us um, toward. And it sounds human. Because which of us can wake up in the morning and all of a sudden be like Jesus? It just doesn't happen that way. We're on a journey. Um, we're on a pilgrimage. And so much of the Christian tradition attests to that.